Hello and welcome back to my study here at Congdon Ministries International. I've been just been reading about one of the battles of the latter days in Ezekiel 38 and 39. These certainly are exciting days to be living in. Each morning as I go on the internet, I read the news, I see more and more global events that appear to be setting the stage for the latter days leading to the return of our Lord. In this series, I will focus upon the first battle of those latter days, the battle of Gog Magog that's prophesied here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. There I read of the nations of Russia, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and of course of Israel. The very same nations we read of in the news every day. Many of us believe that we are seeing the world stage, if you will, being set for this very battle. A battle that I believe will begin the tribulation period that was spoken of by so many of the prophets of our scriptures. Now, if this is true, we could be witnessing a significant event in God's great plan for the latter days of Israel. Won't you join me now as together we study the battle of Gog Magog recorded here in the book of Ezekiel. War is nothing new to Israel. The Bible tells us of many wars and conflicts in the history of Israel. Now Israel's first recorded conflict involved an alliance of four Mesopotamian kings that invaded Israel to take spoils of the fertile land at the south end of the Dead Sea. The record of this is found in Genesis 14. Please turn, if you would, to Genesis 14. This record in Genesis 14 is one that involves Abraham and Lot. Uh, looking at verse 12, we see that these four kings, in verse 12, they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and they departed. This is one of those raids of these kings. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, was taken captive. As he was taken captive, of course, the news came to Abram. In response, Abram armed 318 of his servants and trained them as an army. We read in verse 13 and then 12. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother Eshcol, and brother Avanair, and there were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard... When Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318 of them, and pursued them unto Dan. With this army, Abram not only rescued Lot, but also regained all the spoil that the enemy had taken. For in verse 16, and he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot, his goods, and the woman also, women also, and his people. In these six brief verses, we actually meet, if you will, the first Israeli defense force, the IDF, 
of Israel. You see, war has plagued God's special nation of Israel for millennia, in spite of the fact that the name of her capital, Jerusalem, suggests peace. Lasting peace has been an elusive dream for the people of this city and for this nation, as many a brutal war, even in our own day, attests to. The battles of the past, however, were merely a foretaste of the battles that will be witnessed by Jerusalem and Israel in the latter days. You see, our Lord prophesied of this back in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 6, where he said, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilence, and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. Matthew 24, verses 6 through 8. The Lord gave this message to his disciples on Mount Olivet. He indicated to the disciples that these events would take place during a period of time called the latter days. Now, this term was not new with the Lord's day. It was first used in the Bible by Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 29. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 29. Moses speaking, For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourself and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you, notice when, in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. You see that? Way back in Deuteronomy, well, that's about 3,500 years ago, the Lord spoke about the latter days. Now, it wasn't just Moses' writing of the latter days, because we find in the books of Numbers, Deuteronomy, of course, by Moses, Jeremiah also, Ezekiel, Daniel, and finally Hosea, all wrote about the latter days and used that term. Now, in Genesis, Isaiah, and Micah, the same period of time is also called the last days. And Daniel caused the same period of time, the end, or the end of days, in Daniel chapter 12. So, a careful contextual study of the Bible indicates that the term latter days can indicate, though, in reality, either of two distinct periods in God's plan of history. In other words, God uses the term latter days for two different periods of time in history. The first period being the entire church age. Uh, that's the church age that occurs before the rapture, where the church, we would define the church age as the time when God is calling out a bride, that's all church age believers, for his son. 
we are part of the church age. For the church age is the time that began with Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It will continue until the bride is complete and has been caught up to heaven for the wedding, which we call the catching up, the rapture. Now, the second period of time that is called the latter days in the Bible is the time when God again focuses his attention upon his beloved nation of Israel and begins after the rapture and will continue through the start of the millennium. Thus, as the latter days of the church end, the latter days of Israel will begin. Do you see that? The latter days of the church, as they end, then will begin the latter days of Israel. It should be recalled that for the Old Testament Hebrews, there, are, there was taught and they fully believed, and the scriptures support it, two ages for history. One, the pre-Messianic age, the time before the Messianic rule. And the second age, the Messianic age, when he rules during what we call the millennium. Now we also know there's a third age, the new heavens and new earth. So the Jewish people envisioned two prime ages, the pre-Messianic age before the Messiah would come and the Messianic age when he had come and was now ruling on the earth. And we call that period the millennium, the thousand year rule of Jesus Christ on this earth. Thus for Israel, the latter days are the days ending the pre-Messianic age that are just prior to the commencement of the Messianic age. According to Daniel, these days include the seven-year period called the Tribulation. The, that's that period of time that God uses to prepare Israel for her Messiah and to turn her back to call out for the Messiah to rescue her and save her. Now, Daniel actually uses four different terms to indicate those days. He calls them the time of the end in Daniel 8.17. He calls it the end of time in Daniel 12.4. Again, end time without the in Daniel 12.9. And he speaks of the end of the age. That's the end of the pre-Messianic age in Daniel 12, verse 13. Based upon a study of the term latter days, we conclude that we are living in the latter days of the church age, but we are not living in the latter days of Israel. Now, just before we begin our study of the battlefield of Gog, we need to understand who Ezekiel was as well as the purpose of his ministry. We also need to understand how his message applies to Israel but also can be used to inform and encourage us today in our Christian walk. As part of our study and understanding the background of this book of Ezekiel, we need to know who was Ezekiel. Ezekiel, whose name means God strengthens, was the son of Buzi making him Ezekiel of the priestly line of Zadok. That's the high priest who was under David and supported David during the rebellion against King David. 
Ezekiel's theme of his book is the glory and transcendence of the Lord. As a result of this theme, it was important that the Hebrews of Ezekiel's day understood that it was not the heathen forces that defeated them and that took them into captivity. No, 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 no. These Gentiles were merely God's instruments of justice for the nation's failure to keep the covenant that she had made with him. For the covenant had specified chastisement if the nation turned from her God. Specifically now, that chastisement would be and include exile from the land until the Jewish people repented as a nation and the Jewish people would turn back to God, according to Leviticus chapter 26. Upon Israel's repentance, God promised to restore and bless them in their land. That same covenant promised that God would preserve the nation from extinction when they were in captivity in the land of their enemies, again in Leviticus 26. Ezekiel now reminds the Hebrews of God's promises through the visions that God gave him while they were in the Babylonian captivity. A fitting conclusion of this reminder is found in Ezekiel's final words of his prophecy where he referred to God as Jehovah Shammah. So if you will, look at Ezekiel chapter 48, the very last chapter of this book by Ezekiel and the very last uh, verse, verse 35. He has been describing the new uh, city, the city of Jerusalem during the millennium period. And he says it was around about 18,000 measures and the name of the city from that day on, the name of Jerusalem from that day on is the Lord is there. Or we could say the Lord is here. You see, this verse clearly teaches that following the events described by Ezekiel, during the millennium, the Lord would be present in the city of Jerusalem as the ruling king. In other Jewish writings, this same name, Jehovah Shammah, is applied for the city of Jerusalem also. For, and I quote a theologian who wrote, this will be the name, the very character of the new restored Jerusalem of the future millennial kingdom on earth. Now, in that restored Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ will be seated upon the throne of David, from which he will rule, govern, and be glorified. Ezekiel, writing during the same period now as Jeremiah and Daniel, was a captive in the city of Babylon at the time of his visions. So now please turn to verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Verse 1, chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Here you see, we see that Ezekiel declared the authority of his writing. What gave him the authority to write to Israel? He writes, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year in the fourth month, 
in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives in Babylon by the river of Chabar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. You see, he was in captivity at this point. They saw the visions that God gave him to then encourage Israel during this time of captivity. Ezekiel had been taken to Babylon along with King Jehoiakim of Israel and the other Hebrew captives in 597 B.C. We read that in verses 2 of Ezekiel 1 and also repeat it again in Ezekiel 33:21. God gave Ezekiel visions while he was standing on the shore by this river Chabar. Now, Archaeologists have studied this and they have determined that this river they've identified was the royal canal of Nebuchadnezzar that flowed from Babylon on past Nippur to Erech. When we, we read this beginning of Ezekiel, we can't avoid the obvious connection between Ezekiel's visions at Chabar and those of John on the island of Patmos when he received the book of Revelation. The importance of both books, as well as the writers of Ezekiel and Revelation with respect to the latter days of Israel, is truly noteworthy, and we ought to take note of that. For both were written in places of isolation during a time of Israel's oppression by, and as Paul would describe it, the present evil world system. Now, Ezekiel's ministry began in 582 B.C., and continued to 570 B.C. Now, with that background, we're ready to begin to study Ezekiel's writing and the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. We're now going to begin to look at Ezekiel's prophetic ministry. The book of Ezekiel, the total book, can be divided into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 24, represents Ezekiel's ministry prior to the temple's destruction in 586. In this section, he warned the Israelites of their need to repent in order to avoid judgment to Israel. Ezekiel's vision gave a graphic description of God's glory leaving the temple and leaving the nation as it left from the temple site, moved out to the Mount Olivet, and there it ascended to heaven. Now, I've written a book that explains the significance of this departure of God and his glory and of his ultimate return to Israel. The book is titled The Glory Returns, and you may obtain it through our website and our bookstore there. You can purchase it. God's departure as he left Israel could not have been clearer as he demonstrated the consequences of Israel's ongoing disobedience to him. Now, in the second part of Ezekiel, chapters 25 to 48, God offers the Babylonian captives comfort and certain hope for the future salvation and restoration of the nation of Israel. 
very significant for Israel. This hopes well summarized in the context of the chapters that come notice immediately before and immediately after Ezekiel's vision of the battle of Gog, Magog, that is found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, let's notice how the chapter surrounding that vision of Gog, Magog really helps us to understand the timing of it and the events themselves. Ezekiel 36 and 37 introduce the hope of the promised restoration as God's people and nation. Ezekiel 40 and 43, on the other side, if you will, of Gog Magog, portray the restoration of the temple and the Lord's return to dwell with his people following the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium. Thus, the context places the battle of Gog Magog during this crucial time between the start of the restoration and the millennial kingdom. So let me summarize that again. Ezekiel 36 describes the restoration of Israel. Ezekiel 37 illustrates that process of restoration. 38 and 39 inform us that these events will take place right as part of that. Ezekiel 40:42 describes the millennial temple and Ezekiel 43 describes the Lord's entrance, the return of the glory into the temple. Speaking of the reason for this need of restoration, Jeremiah also wrote, and this is what he said, They shall be carried to Babylon, and there shall they be until the day that I visit them, saith the Lord. Then will I bring them up and restore them to this place. Now that's in Jeremiah 27, 22. The words I want you to notice carefully is until the day that I visit them. Uh, this word visit is used many times in scripture. When God uses the term, he uses it with always two possible outcomes. Which one depends on the context of the scriptures? For example, in Jeremiah, God promised to bless Israel when he visited her. In other words, he would bestow on her a good or a positive reaction to Israel. Now, in Ezekiel 38, in verse, 88, uh, verse 8, we will see that God declares that he will visit Gog after many days, implying here not blessing, but God's coming judgment. Now, I'm going to just insert a little statement here. As I teach this course to you, inevitably, at some point, I'm going to say God and mean Gog, or I will say Gog and mean God. So just bear with me over that one letter change. It's very easy to mix them up. Okay, so what we see here is that this term is used here in Ezekiel 38 in the second outcome or the negative one, a judgment against Gog, the enemy of Israel. Hence the word visit might be best defined as to exercise oversight over a subordinate, in other words, to take an action over someone beneath the power exercising this oversight, either in the form of inspection, checking it out, or of taking action to cause a considerable change in the circumstance of the subordinate, either for better or for worse, either for blessing or for judgment. 
In Ezekiel 38, we find God luring Gog down to Israel to carry out a mission that will have a bad outcome for Gog, but will bring a blessing for Israel. So when God visits in Ezekiel 38, it will be a judgment against Gog and a bad outcome for Gog, but it will result in blessing for Israel. Now, at this point, we need to remember something crucial to any study of the scriptures. That is that the church and Israel are two distinctly different entities in God's plan and his purpose of history. God deals with each separately and in a distinctly different manner. But I would hasten to add that salvation for both Israel, Old Testament saints, and the church is by faith alone in the atoning work of the Messiah. Throughout history, salvation and how it's obtained is never changed. Whether you were way back before Israel, whether you lived in Israel, whether you're in the church age, whether you're in the tribulation, whether you're in the millennium, salvation is always the same. It amounts to trusting in God to provide you salvation through the substitute who would shed his blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, in the Old Testament, they didn't know the name, the Lord Jesus Christ, but we do in the New Testament. So they were looking ahead to the messianic provision by God to provide them salvation, but they still had to trust God to provide that salvation. Now again, remember, the church must be removed in the rapture before God can resume his covenantal relationship with Israel. That's going to be the next prophetic event for the church, is the removal of the church to join Jesus Christ in heaven. But the next prophetic event for Israel, according to the scriptures, is the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, the seven seven-year tribulation. At the end of this period, which is also known, by the way, as the time of Jacob's trouble, Jesus Christ will return to earth to, to defeat Israel's enemies and to establish his thousand-year earthly kingdom. Since Ezekiel 37 defines both the beginning and ending of this troubled time, we should consider the possibility that the great conflict described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 will fall within that time frame. And these two chapters will offer more details about the period and its participants. And in fact, as we study it, we will see that this battle marks the beginning of the tribulation. Now, before we begin an in-depth look into these two critical chapters, we need to have a brief overview of the battlefield and the outcome of the battle. Tell me, do you like mystery stories? I like reading good mystery stories, and few are written today that are decent to read, but in the past there were some exciting mystery stories. But I have to tell you about a habit of mine that when reading mysteries, that really upsets my wife and my son. Maybe you too. I always begin by reading the last couple pages of the book. 
Well, this way I can avoid the tension of wondering how it will turn out and who did it. I'm now going to do this for those of you who may not know the outcome of the Battle of Gog Magog and, like me, want to know the end before you begin reading the entire story. God begins Ezekiel 38 by describing the army of Gog and his allies in verse 9 as a cloud that will cover the land. At God's appointed time, he will move or visit Gog, causing Gog to lead his allies in planning and preparing for war against Israel. This time of preparation will be like the formation of a distant storm. Israel may see the ominous clouds slowly darkening the clear blue sky and beginning to cover the land. To Israel, Gog's army will appear as a formidable foe, capable of devouring the entire nation and destroying it. As we'll see in a latter session, the term cloud is very appropriate for the allies of Gog Magog, for they will come in great number and will come upon the entire land of Israel. God, however, will visit Israel, and here's the blessing part, and save his chosen nation just at the point when she becomes aware of the enormity of the danger she is in and is in despair for her very survival. God will begin his counteroffensive against Gog by shaking the land of Israel. In verse 19, Ezekiel wrote, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. A great shaking in the land of Israel. That's an earthquake. This effect, as we read on, will affect the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. God states that all creeping things and all humanity upon, notice this, the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. When this great earthly catechism takes place, all peoples will recognize that God is intervening in human history, for this will be a far greater that, than a natural earthquake. It will reflect the enormity of God's wrath toward the enemies of his beloved nation Israel. Now, this verse 19 combines the Hebrew words for jealousy, blazing fire, and wrath in order to express God's emotion of extreme anger in the strongest possible way, both in the Hebrew grammar and in the vocabulary of the Israelites. Well, why is God jealous? Simply because Israel is God's wife and he will defend her. We see this in Isaiah 54, 5 and Ezekiel 16 and 8. God's destruction of Gog and his allies begins in verse 21 of Ezekiel 38. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. What he means is they'll turn and fight each other. 
Notice how God causes confusion among the enemies of Israel so that they shall start fighting one another. Added to this disarray, God also pours down rain, hailstone, fire, and brimstone in verse 22. And I will plead against him with pestilence, with blood. I will rain upon him and upon his bands, upon the many peoples that are with him, and overflowing rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. The end result will be the complete destruction of the armies of Gog in one day. Because verse 19 said, that day. Clearly in that day, in the land of Israel, Ezekiel's final words of his book will be fulfilled, for the Lord is there. Now, now that we know the end of the story, we're ready to begin our study of the events leading up to this great battle. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 38 and read verse 1 with me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Obviously, God inspired Ezekiel to record this prophecy, so that Israel, and now we, may understand how God will become, according to Ezekiel 38:23, known in the eyes of many nations, and they, Israel, shall know that I am the Lord. Notice, this battle will result in him being magnified, God being magnified, and will be known in the eyes of many nations, not just Israel, but many nations. Again, back in verse 1, let's continue. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of... Uh, hold it. Let's not move quickly into verse 2. I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. How often we read scripture, do we tend to skip through these introductory sentences as if God put them there for the simple folks? <laughs> but we, Bible students, we don't need to consider such obvious statements as the word of the Lord came unto me in verse 1. We're ready right to move into the text of verse 2. Well, aside from the obvious sense here that God inspired Ezekiel to write this prophecy, there is actually great significance in this verse and in other verses of Ezekiel 38 because it's reflected in the choice of names for God as Ezekiel wrote. Now, upon first glance, we might say, well, you know, God likes variety. And rather than always saying the word of God, he changes the term God to the word of the Lord to offer variety. But there is great danger in missing some of what God has written if we treat Scripture too lightly or too superficially. For example, over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, God explains the difference between the word seed by emphasizing singular versus plural. In other words, over just a letter S. For he wrote... Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not as to seeds, s, plural, as of many, but as of one, singular, and to that seed, singular, which is Christ. Do you see this? The distinction between the singular and the plural seed is of great theological significance. 
for it distinguishes Jesus Christ from all of Abram's other descendants. Never forget, God specified every word in the original scriptures in order to convey, and I stress this, a precise meaning to us. Have you ever considered that the phrase all scripture is given by inspiration of God means much more than we often attribute to it? Our God is very exacting in writing his scriptures. His inspiration controlled every word, every grammatical expression, every phrase, every aspect of the text. Thus, we must carefully study it and not just skip over what we think are minor forms of words or avoid the grammar because we don't like grammar. I don't like grammar, but we don't like the grammar. No, 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 no. We have to consider all aspects as we carefully study his word. Here in Ezekiel 38 verse 1 is a significant example of the importance of word forms and terms. Now, the publishers want to help us to do this task of understanding the precision of our God. When preparing our Bibles for print, the publishers try to help us see the important differences that we might otherwise overlook. These differences often appear insignificant to us, but in reality they speak loudly in meaning. In our study here, the different names for God are very significant. Therefore, we're going to briefly point out these distinctions that have become so important as we study the Word. In chapters 38, the differences in typesetting reflect the original Hebrew terms for God that might be lost in our English translation apart from this typesetting. You see, in the Hebrew, there are several names for God with each reflecting a different nuance or aspect of God's character. Here in verse 1, the term for God is Lord. Notice carefully, capital L, then O-R-D is also capitals. It's printed in all uppercase letters. But notice the first letter is in a larger font than the following three letters. As we shall see shortly, this tells us much about God as he begins revealing the future to Ezekiel. Over in Ezekiel verse 39, uh, chapter 39 and verse 22 though, we have a different name for God. Notice it says, The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord. Now that was the first name we saw back in 38 verse 1. Their God, that's the second name. It's the simple word, God. But here the publisher distinguishes it by printing the first letter in uppercase, but the remaining two letters are in lowercase. But if we look back at Ezekiel 38, verse 3, we see that same term, God. But notice here, it is not the same typesetting as back in 39. In verse 3, thus saith the Lord God, the Lord God. This is a third name for God. It's not simply joining the two that we've already mentioned from verse 1, the Lord, and the word God in, verse, in chapter 38, 9. 
Instead, we notice, first of all, that the word Lord is capital L. The next three letters are now lowercase. And then the word God, G is in uppercase, but so is O-D. You see, the publishers somehow have to distinguish between the Lord of verse 1 and the God of 39 verse 22. So they've changed the typesetting. Here in verse 3, Lord has its first letter, as I said, in uppercase, but the next three subsequent letters are in lowercase. This is a different Hebrew word than used in verse 1. So the publisher is saying to us by this change in format, notice this isn't the same word as verse 1. The word God also is different from that in Ezekiel 39.22. And again, the publisher differentiates it by changing the uppercase-lowercase relationships. Clearly, Ezekiel is using three different Hebrew terms for God, and we need to distinguish between them if we are to properly interpret God's word. For to ignore these differences may mean that we miss part of God's message to us. So let's look at each of these three names of God in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The first is Lord in verse 1. That is the Hebrew covenantal name YHWH for God. I don't pronounce it out of respect for the fact that the Hebrews did not pronounce it. They believe this is a very special name for God. And I'll explain this in just a second why it is so special. It's called by uh, Bible students the tetragrammaton, using the Greek term for four letters. This is the name that God instructed Moses to use when he was referring to his unique relationship with his beloved nation. You may recall in Exodus, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. That's Exodus 3, verse 14. From that day forward, Israel uses this tetragrammaton, the I am, to indicate their covenantal relationship to the creator God of Exodus 3.15. You see, this is the special name between Israel and her God. In Exodus 3.15, interestingly, it is the word God, G-O-D, as we understand it. You see, prior to the covenant, those of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called the God of the Bible simply God or the God of their fathers in Exodus 3.6. Their God, Elohim in the Hebrew, is the plural of El, the Hebrew El, denoting the greatness or superiority of others. In other words, God. When it's used of God in the Bible, it means he is over all other powers, whether you call those powers gods, angels, men. God of the Bible is above and over all of those and is the great power. For it distinguishes the true God, El, from all false uses of the name, found in other cultures. Furthermore, it is used of the one who is the creator 
of all things, the entire universe. All things that were created were created by God, Elohim. Both here in Ezekiel and in many of its usages throughout the Bible, the plural Elohim is simply translated as God, singular. Even though Elohim in the Greek, in the Hebrew, is plural. Interestingly, even though it's a plural noun, it is used with singular verbs. Hence, we have an anomaly from a grammatical standpoint. Yes, here we go again with grammar. Remember back in school how they stressed subject-verb agreement? In other words, if you used a singular noun, you used a singular verb. Plural noun, plural verb. But this didn't do this. Here, the singular noun is used with plural verb. The agreement is designed by God and interpreted by Jewish scholars as to signify the unity of God. It's understood to mean the unity in a grander sense by Christian scholars because they see in it, and I do too, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, totally unified in all that it does. He does. It is interesting that this plural noun and singular verb only exists in Hebrew. It's never followed through or written in other semantic languages. It would be El did things, not Elohim. Only in the Hebrew. Very significant. The third variation of the name was the term we saw, Lord God, in verse 3. Here, Lord, in the Hebrew, is the word Adonai. It means a ruler or master over others, such as the head of a household over those whom he directs with his authority. The second term, capitalized G-O-R-D, G-O-D, is actually the tetragrammaton once again. But rather than printing Lord with small lowercase three letters and then Lord with uppercase letters but different font, which could cause some confusion because it's really printing Lord, Lord, English translations use God as equivalent to Lord when it's part of the compound name and they signify it with all uppercase letters. That's when you see all capitals for the word God. It is the same word that they print with all capitals of Lord, but, of course, with Lord with different font sizes. When you see Lord God, it is best translated as Master God, the all-powerful God who has total authority. In Ezekiel, Lord, with all capital letters, is used when God is speaking to his beloved Israel, his covenantal relationship, his covenantal name, that special name to Israel. When he speaks to Israel through Ezekiel, this always reflects a personal relationship to the covenant people of Israel. Thus, God begins the prophecy here of Ezekiel 38 of the battle of Gog Magog with, and the word of the Lord, uniquely speaking to Israel, came unto Ezekiel. See, Ezekiel's telling us that God is speaking specifically to his covenant people, the nation of Israel, 
and his message is a special message for those he loves of hope and comfort, and it's for them alone. But two verses later, in verse 3, we see how the reader is signaled by the change from Lord to Lord God in order to emphasize the distinction between beloved Israel and now the enemy, Gog. God wants it known to Gog and we the readers of Scripture that God is the master God of the heathen nations and their leaders. No covenantal relationship here. No, no, no. This is one of power, control, and direction. God is the master of the heathen nations. As such, Gog has no choice but to serve the master God. Now, in addition to pointing out the need to note the important differences in the name of Gog in Ezekiel, I have to add a, a, a caution, if you will, as we begin this study. As we study any unfulfilled prophetic event, I want to make it absolutely clear that I do not claim that any prophetic event is now being fulfilled or that individuals named in this book are identifiable today in our world. For example, some claim they know for certain who the Antichrist is. Have you ever known? I know who the Antichrist Oh yeah, I checked this carefully. Here it is, it is. And then they name someone whom they either don't like or they don't agree with. It's often done about political leaders. Oh, I didn't like him. He must be the Antichrist. No, 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 no. You can't know who the Antichrist is until the tribulation. He can't be identified till then. Throughout this study, we will use examples of nations that exist today, of individuals who are alive today, but with the express purpose of showing that what the Bible portrays prophetically is feasible in our day for these nations and these individuals behave as we might expect the setting of the stage would occur. But we are not saying that any man himself is the Antichrist or is Gog himself. I am not claiming that any individual or empire is the certain fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. Now, when Ezekiel writes of specific names in Ezekiel's day, we will relate those lands to names that you and I are familiar with today. But I will never name who Gog is because I don't know who he is. In fact, I believe we'll be removed and taken up before Gog will be apparent as to the true Gog. I'm going to use people, nations, circumstances of our day to demonstrate that the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy could be coming very, very near. Near to us in our day. Because we need to be alert to the potential nearness of the Lord's coming for his church at any moment. Recognizing this, I'm going to add a presupposition just prior to beginning the study. We'll consider this text in its literal, historical, grammatical context. Thus, if the text makes sense and is feasible, we will take it in its normal sense rather than assume it's symbolic or intricately complicated. For example, when it says swords, it says horses. I'm going to accept that as swords and horses. 
I'm not going to have to make up some meaning saying, well, swords must mean machine guns. No, no, no. Take it as you read it. Interestingly, 4th century biblical theologian Jerome called this book of Ezekiel a labyrinth of the mysteries of God. In saying this, he was suggesting the impossibility of understanding such teachings of God, and therefore he readily jumped to allegorical or symbolical interpretations in order to eliminate his frustrations. Now, Jerome, along with Origen and others, believed that Ezekiel's message could not possibly depict divine government in so simple and clear, straightforward a manner. Therefore, the writings had to contain concepts that are beyond man's comprehension and shouldn't be taken in a literal, normal sense. <laughs> it makes you wonder why they thought God bothered to give us a book that couldn't be understood apart from man making up meanings for it. Also, they believe God's promise to Israel must be transferred to the church in order to make sense of it. Rather than seeing Ezekiel's writing in a straightforward manner, explicit and full of force, they chose to invent allegories. William Kelly, a great Bible teacher of the 19th century, countered them by noting, and I quote from William Kelly, it's absurd to suppose that details so minute, so circumstantial are mere literary drapery, end quote. I agree with Kelly, and I too reject allegorical interpretations in our study. Now, with this lengthy introduction, I would note that as we begin our study of these two chapters of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, we will identify the participants. We will explain God's plan in detail. We will consider the possible timing of the event, and we will seek to understand God's purpose and what he wants to achieve through this battle of Gog Magog, and finally show how this prophecy glorifies God and fits in with his plan of history. To do this, we'll show how feasible it is for these events and the nation involved to happen in our world. Thank you for joining me in this class. Please join me again for our next class on the Battle of Gog Magog. It's our goal to eventually be able to offer classes every two weeks. We're also in the process of producing several special classes, including many on New Calvinism and its dangers to the church. Be sure to go to our website, www.congdenministries.org, for more information and for dates of the webcasts. Remember, all classes are available on demand 24-7 after the initial live webcast. Now may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you again either here or in the air. Yeshua returns to Israel. From the 
majesty and light with cloud scattering Satan's night every eye shall see his pierced hands and deity when Yeshua